We thank you for the time that you have prepared uh, for us to be here for such a time as this. And so, Lord, while we rejoice at all that you have done and there has been so much, um, I think about, as I look at all those pictures, I think about the stories and even the, the people I saw rolling into church today and I see not just the transformation of this church or this building, but the transformation of people. This place has allowed that to happen, Lord, because you've given us a, a home, a place that people feel like is theirs, that they can come and serve and be a part, and we're just so grateful. So, Lord, we want to, as uh, our family does on our birthdays, um, we want to dedicate this place to you again in this new year. May this building be a place that brings honor to Jesus. May it be a place where people can come and are seen, not for who they aren't, but for who they are. May many people come to know you in this next year. We pray that in faith. Would you entrust us with people's stories, with people's lives, with people's hurts, with people's brokenness. May this be a place where they can meet you face to face, Jesus. May this be a place where their word becomes alive to them, where they are a part of a healthy community of people that are looking to you and loving each other. We thank you so much, Lord. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen. And just in case you're wondering, how long does it take to paint a 12,000 square foot building uh, at least a year because we did the first summer the last summer our Wednesday night we've done all sorts of stuff over the years but last year we gathered every Wednesday and we did food and building projects and you start out like just slapping that paint on the wall about 10 weeks into it there's about a third of the people still slapping paint on the walls. And then I was gone for these past two weeks, which was awesome, by the way. And I got back and was walking around the building. And to the people that have been continuing to serve the past two weeks with the back hallway and the bathrooms and back over here and all that you guys are doing, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for serving. Yeah. For serving your church family, well, for serving the Lord first and foremost, but also for serving your church family, um, your work does not go unnoticed, even though it goes unnoticed a lot of the time. And um, you are serving a cause greater than yourself, and um, I'm with you. I appreciate that. Uh, I noticed. It looks amazing. Our bathroom doesn't look like a cave anymore. You walk in, and you're excited to go to the bathroom. <laughs> you're not scared. Looking around the corner. Okay, got a lot to share with you guys today. So if you would open up your Bibles to Mark. Did you guys enjoy our guest preachers the past couple weeks? Yeah, good. Yeah, we we're, we're, um, feel honored that they would come. And um, I got all of your messages that you sent me about them. And I reached out to, to uh, both Bob and Richard and let them know thank you and and. Um, just from from us to them. So yeah, it was I was I was stoked that they were they were here, but I am excited to be back. Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be. 
We were just at this text a few weeks ago, but God gave me fresh eyes as I was looking at it, and I want to preach a message or share a message with you guys that we're going to call, Don't Miss the Point. Somebody turn to your person to your left and say, Don't Miss the Point. Now speak this to yourself. Ready? Don't miss the point. All right. Mark chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. Says this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Verse 5. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Was, were they sneaky about it? Were they all bold and like rolled right up and did it? I don't know. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Verse 7, and they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches. Hence, Palm Sunday. Palm leafy branches. That they had cut from out in the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 11, And he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This has been called the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. And I really have a two-point message today. They seem to not go together, but they fit together perfectly um, when we're talking about this. I'm going to break it down. The first thing I want to point out is those first six verses. Before Jesus came into Jerusalem, this is the Sunday before he was crucified, by the way. This is the final 20, uh, not 24 hours, seven days of Jesus's life and ministry here on earth before the cross. We know that after Jesus was resurrected, he was around for 50 days uh, working miracles and showing himself to be risen before he ascended to the right hand of the Father and then sent the the Holy Spirit. Um, But uh, this is the final week of Jesus's life. And it says that when they drew near to Jerusalem, which we know from a few weeks back that this was Jesus, it says there, there came a time, a point in that last few months where it says Jesus set his face steadfastly to Jerusalem. It seems as if his ministry and his message changed. He was on mission and moving forward. And he went and remember he was going through Jericho and that's where he met Bartimaeus, you guys remember him from three weeks ago, the blind man who saw so much that we learned from. And as they were drawing near to Jerusalem, 
the Mount of Olives, Jesus says to two of his disciples, hey, go into the village up there, and immediately as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied, which no one has ever sat and tie it, bring it. If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Say, the Lord has need of it, and they will send it back here immediately. And it says they went and they found it. Actually, Matthew's account tells us there were two colts, a mother and then her baby colt, on which no one has ever sit, sat before. So probably a small donkey. We're not, these aren't horses. These are donkey colts. This was to fulfill a prophecy. For those of you that have maybe are familiar with the scripture, uh, it had said for hundreds of years before that when the Messiah, the one who was going to set up this earthly throne, when he came into Jerusalem, he was going to be humble and lowly, riding on the, the, the foal of a colt, a, a baby donkey. If you're a King James person, he was going to be on a little ass. Um, these, are, these are church jokes. Um, but it's true. There's even a Christmas song that, that you can sing that says that. That's always funny to sing that word in like a three-part harmony. Okay. And so Jesus, so this is foretold, but we don't want to miss something. There was something that Jesus had need of. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus was going to do something in Bellingham, could he trust in your cooperation? Would he say, go into this church? We'll get what we need there. They'll let it go. You know, some commentators say that this homeowner, this donkey owner, and Jesus had already spoken, and they were expecting it to happen. Jesus was like, hey, just to let you know, in a few weeks I'm going to be coming into town, and you might see a couple of people outside of your door taking your donkey. Is Can I borrow it? I'm trying to show them something and prove a point. Maybe that's true. But it doesn't have to be for what we want to understand about this. The bottom line is this person had something that was of great value to them that when Jesus came calling with no questions, the person let it go. Could Jesus trust me? Could Jesus trust you with our full support and cooperation in the work that he wants to do? It's a good question. Would he, or you could think of it like this, would he involve you in his plan? Or are you involved in Jesus' plan? Because there are things that God is doing in his kingdom that whether you know it or not, he's asking for your partnership. He wants you to be a part of it. And often the way God will allow you to be a part of what's going on, you ready? He's going to ask you to invest something that costs you something. It's called putting, having skin in the game. It's being, being part of something by giving to something. It's not just saying, yeah, Lord, I'm with you. Good luck. I'll be standing over here. He's saying, would you be a part? Here's how you can be part. And this person gave something that was of great value to them. 
See, here's where it gets hard. Because that sounds good and some of us are, are there. Not all of us. There are many people that are in the church that are consumers only. They come and they receive and they eat and they consume and then they leave. I got to go to church the last two weeks. Not prepare a message. Um, just go to church. And it was refreshing and it was odd to me a little bit as well. Like it took the first week I was like, okay, I don't have to do anything. I can just be, and it was actually really refreshing for my spirit, but at the same time, it re-something um, re my heart to where I was just so excited to get back and do what God has asked me to do uh, it, it, here at the bridge. But I was like, oh, it's so easy to like go to church and not get involved. It only took me two weeks to, to realize, I think people do this for years. You just go and you kind of are part. And maybe you're even really worshiping and praying and asking God to do stuff in your life. But then service is over and you're like, no one's saying hi to me. I'm out of here. And you go back to the thing and what was deposited gets taken so fast. Where it gets hard is when you do put skin in the game. And you are worshiping God with your whole life. You are honoring him with your finances. You are giving what you just worked your tail off for. And he's not even telling you what he's going to do with it. It's just that he has need. He wants it, has need of it. Because it's not what, that God wants the donkey from this person. God is doing a kingdom of God work on earth and asked that person to partner with him. For that person, it was a donkey. But it was of something that was of value for us. It is the things that... Our, our heartstrings are tied to. So he's like, you give of this. And sometimes I think that I have shortchanged you guys because I haven't almost called us to this place of God wants to do a work and he is asking us to partner with him. But it's the truth, and he is. But this is where it gets hard because if you are actively involved in bringing the kingdom of God to Bellingham and to your home and into the world, when Jesus asks you to partner with him, he asks you to partner with his whole plan. Maybe if you're a note taker, jot that one down. Jesus asks you to partner with his whole plan. That's important because we don't want to miss the point, right? Let's look at what we're talking about. Jesus' whole plan is a plan of redemption, not rule. When Jesus rolled into Jerusalem on the donkey, he had a plan. There was a purpose. His purpose was redemption, not rule. And the people missed the point. Check this out. Let's pick it up in verse 7. So they got the donkey they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. 
Hosanna in the highest. So what's going on here? Well, this moment had been foretold by the prophet um, Zechariah. We had just went through that not too long ago in our remnant series. And uh, Zechariah was talking about that there was, he was prophesying. Remember, the, the Babylonians had come in and taken uh, the Israelites captive, tore their temple down, just destroyed everything, made them their slaves. They were, this is where Daniel and the lion's den and all that stuff is kind of happening. And then in three waves, God allows people to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild. That was the remnant. And in this rebuilding process, he sends Zechariah, and he is looking around and seeing the destruction, and then he foretells of the one who was going to come that was going to make everything right, that would set everything back up again. He was going to reestablish David's throne, King David, David and Goliath David, the greatest king Israel ever had. It was, it was all tore down, but there was one coming that was going to rebuild it. And not only was he going to rebuild it, he was going to make it super sweet. And it would last forever. No one would defeat him. And here's how he was going to show up. Riding on a donkey. Humble and meek. Coming into town, riding on a donkey. And this was it. People were like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is it. And so... This is where the Hosanna, Hosanna means save us, like right now. Things are bad. Everything is bad. This is the perfect time. Please save us. Hosanna in the highest. Son of, um, son of David, all of those things, they're, mess, they're titles for the king. Here's the problem. Human nature and history have both shown us, if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, over and over and over, human nature and history have both shown us that when people overemphasize God's rule, they tend to miss his mission. They get so focused on his rule, who he is, that they forget what he came to do. See, when Jesus rolled into Jerusalem on this donkey, fulfilling the prophecy that the king would come and set up a kingdom that would rule over all, the promise was that he would rid the, Jew, rid the, the Jews of their oppressors and that they would actually, one day, they would dance upon injustice, the Bible says, and no one would ever put them to shame again. He rolled in Jerusalem, and he allowed people to call him king. It says this is the first time that Jesus received. If you read the New Testament, you'll catch these little sentences in there. It says, and they tried to make him king by force, but Jesus slipped away. They tried to make him rule over them. But Jesus, you'll see that a few times, but this was the time where he didn't say, no, no, don't call me king. He allowed it all to come. As a matter of fact, if you look in, in Luke, 
in verse 39, Luke 19, 39, it says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples, like tell them to be quiet. They can't be saying this to you. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, Jesus didn't deny his rule as king. He didn't say, oh, I'm not king. I'm just a, a meek messenger. He allowed the title to be given to him. See, they called it, in the Bible it even says, maybe your, your little subtitle there, the triumphal entry. It's called the triumphal entry because the Jews thought their time had come and that they had won. They thought laws are going to be changed. A new administration will be ushered in. That's why James and John were like, yo. I don't know if they said yo, but they said Jesus. They actually had their mom do it for them. When your new kingdom is set up, can we be in like the cabinet? Can we like be at your right hand and at your left? helping run this thing. And remember Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. But they were like, this is it. Rome, no more. This is what the people were thinking when they're laying down the branches and taking off their jackets and putting them on the, on the street. And here comes this king. He's like, the people are like, finally, this rule is over and this one's about to happen. We won. Victory is ours. But nothing was won that day. And then one week later, the very same people that were saying, yes, now is our time, they were saying, we don't want him. Crucify him. One week later, the crowds were rejecting the same, one, the same person that they said, this is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And now they're saying, give us Barabbas the person that we know is guilty of murder and all these things, and take Jesus because he's not who we say he is. Why? How, did the, how, did you, how do you get from Jesus, you're the one, to we don't want him? They missed, it. They missed something. The people cheered for Jesus' rule but they missed his role. I want to look at four things that Jesus did when he entered the city on that donkey that he did very much on purpose, but there are four things that I think the people missed, and I think you'll see that this applies not just to them, but this is for us as well. Four things Jesus did as king, because he received the praise of king. He said, I tell you that if these people weren't calling me by my true title, the very rocks would call me because this is a fact that can't be denied. And then what are four things that Jesus did? There's a lot, but I have four, and they all start with C. <laughs> so it's perfect. The first one was this. Oh, and by the way, all four of these things weren't for them out there. You know, the Roman people that were oppressing the church or didn't agree with the way um, you, they, weren't, they weren't part of Jesus's people. All four of these have to do with us in here, followers of Jesus, that we don't want to miss the point. Here's the first one. 
we'll pick it up and flip over to Luke because this is a little, um, a little tidbit that Mark's account doesn't have, but Luke's account has. And here's the first thing that Jesus did. He cried. He cried over the condition of his people. Says this, Luke 19, starting in verse 41. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. People are going, you're the king, you're the king. And as he came closer to the city as a king, Jesus started to cry. And this is what he said. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and they will encircle you and close you in from every side. They will crush you to the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize, you did not recognize it when God visited you. Jesus cries because he knows all things. He knows the future of this people. He knew that in 70 years, um, in like 40 years from right now, when he was coming in, that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and the temple was going to be torn down and not one stone would be left on top. In 70 AD, Rome came in and wiped everything out. And he said it's because they missed a point. They didn't know the day of God's visitation to them. You could say like this, they were so full of themselves, there was no room for God. The second thing he did, he cursed He cursed the fig tree back in Mark. Verse 12, on the following day, so it says he came into Jerusalem, went to the temple, looked around, went out back out of the city, and then every day for the next week, we talk, Jesus will be coming into the city. So when you're reading Mark uh, from here to the end of the book, when you're reading Luke, where are we at, like 19? toward the end of the book, John 13 to the end of the book. This is the last week of Jesus's life. So you read these things and every day he would go to Jerusalem. His disciples would follow him. He would teach them stuff. He would do stuff in Jerusalem and then head back out of the city and where he was staying at Mary, Martha and Lazarus's house out of the city. That's where the last supper happened. And so there's a lot of back and forth this last week. So in in, uh, Mark 11, on the following day, uh, when they verse verse twelve, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, "May no one ever eat fruit from you again." And his disciples heard it. Enter the Snickers commercial. What's the one where they, you act, they shows them they're acting like a super whiny person and you're not being yourself and then you eat a Snickers and you're fine? It's like, was Jesus hangry? I don't understand. Walking in and he saw a fig tree, but there were no figs on it and he cursed the fig tree 
and it, it, it tells us later on that they walked back and the thing was withered and dead. What does that have to do with missing the point? Well, a fig tree, apparently, upon further review and study, when a fig tree has leaves, it's supposed to signify that there's fruit. Because fig trees, as they're budding, as we see around here, I just got back two weeks, and there's cherries everywhere. And I can tell because they're all over the sidewalk and the birds are flying all around because we have cherry trees in our neighborhood. But just like that, you see in the spring, trees start to bud and boom, the leaves pop out and then here comes the fruit. We went down to grandma and grandpa's yesterday and we picked our first raspberries of the year. And uh, they were good, weren't they? And it was a taste, it was a, a, a look of, it was a preview of things to come. But if we would have rolled down and seen these things in leaf but no fruit on them, well, those are worthless raspberry bushes. And that's what Jesus is saying here. A tree that has leaves but no fruit, it has the appearance but no fruit. He cursed the fig tree. This is a type for his people, his church, the, the, the nation of Israel. They were so full of themselves, there was no room for him. He sees this. It tells us later that he teaches a lesson on the fig tree. And the whole point is there's an appearance of godliness, but no fruit. It looks like it should provide, but this, is, this, this isn't helping anybody. It, it's like when, the, when your life looks good on paper but it doesn't help anyone. When you know the answer, if you were to take the written test, but it's not being lived out in your day-to-day life. That's what Jesus was talking about. The church misses it when it looks good on paper, but has no power. The third thing he did is he cleansed the temple. Verse 15, and then he came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Gosh, that was so worth underlining. Not for the... The in-group, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Let me just tell you what's going on here real quick. He comes in, fig tree, cries over the city, curses the fig tree. Now he's going to cleanse the temples. The first thing he did on the first Monday after he came in as a king, he didn't walk up to Pontius Pilate's place and punch him in the mouth. Um, he went to church and he cleaned house. Because here's what was going on. On the Temple Mount, it's this big zone up on the, if you look at a, a picture of Jerusalem now, you'll see the, gold, the big gold dome of the rock. That's the, the Temple Mount that we're talking about. And that's where Herod's temple was before it was destroyed. 
and it was the center of the city. It's where all stuff, and it was the, the central place. People would pass through the temple grounds to get from one part of the city to another. Now, there were different parts of the temple mount. There were some parts that no matter what you believed, no matter where you're from, all of that, you could go there. It's called the, the, the court of the Gentiles. But then there was an inner part where the Jews could go, those that um, either had been converted to Judaism or were of Jewish background where they could go. It was kind of like their worship center. And then within that, there was another place where only the high priest could go. And that was the place of sacrifice, the Holy of Holies. And, and then there was like the, the, the Holy of Holies was like even within that, which was just like where the Ark of the Covenant was and, well, once upon a time. But it was like this place where on the Day of Atonement, the, behind this veil, a priest would go back and sacrifice the lamb on behalf of all people. Just so happens during this week is Passover. And so growing throughout the city, we're getting ready to have this, this lamb sacrifice on behalf of people's uh, sins for the year. And that's why there was so many people in the city, like a million people probably. One lamb per family for a million people. How many lambs is that? What's a million divided by four? Come on. What's a hundred divided by four? Twenty hundred divided by four. Attaboy. So a million divided by four is what? 250,000. 250,000 little lammies cruising around getting ready to be sacrificed on behalf of people's sins for the year. For each household to bring a lamb to do that, they would come in, and what, here's what was happening. They were getting upcharged at the temple. They were coming in with, like, their lamb that was the best they had, but they were getting upcharged by the pastors and by, like, the people. They were like, oh, that lamb's pretty good, but... You want God to, like, really forgive your sins, right? Just so happens for you, we got a better lamb. I tell you what, you give us that lamb, and you give us 50 bucks, and we'll get you a good lamb. Oh, you have money from outside of our area. I tell you what, you can only pay because we're God's people. We only deal with a certain kind of coin. So we'll give, but for you today, we'll give you a special price to convert your money to our coin. We'll... Here's what it's going to cost to do that. Here's what it's going to cost to get your lamb. And this is what was happening. And Jesus rolled in and he was like, you know, this is supposed to be a place where people come to find grace. A house of prayer. Do you know what a house of prayer is? It's for people who come when they're hurting. And they're able to say, God, if you're there, you know, that's a great prayer for someone who's never walked with Jesus. I prayed that prayer. I don't think God is scared of the prayer of someone who comes and they're like, I've never really done this before. But there's something in their spirit that's like, God, if you're there, it's me, Margo. I could really use you because I don't know what's happening in my life. But you know what it was? There was a, a, a thought throughout the city. It's like, I'll tell you the last place I'm going for help the temple 
they rob people. Last time I tried to go in there and get help, they just turned me around like I was no good. Forget those people. I'm not going back. And Jesus was not stoked about that. They were misrepresenting the heart of God to the world. They were taking advantage of people, taking advantage of people. Let me tell you something that was true for them and is true for us. God's judgment begins in his own house. He cleans the heart of his people before the heart of the world can turn to him because he wants people to be able to come to a place where they can bring the entirety of who they are, that they don't find judgment, but they find belonging. That they don't find hurt, but help. That they find a group of people that have removed the log out of their own eyes, not so that they don't tell people about sin or judgment or any of those things, but it says so we can see clearly to help people through what they're going through. It's not that we never talk about sin or point out sin. It's we understand what forgiveness is. So we are good at helping other people walk in grace and forgiveness. The only way to be forgiven is to bring something to God for him to forgive, but they wouldn't bring anything to him because they felt like it was phony like they were being taken advantage of. I don't know about you, but it sounds way too familiar to me. The last thing he did, and just so happens it starts with a C, he was crucified. Not only did Jesus not overthrow the political system of the day, he died for the very people he was supposed to overthrow. You see, Jesus' rule is he is king. But his role was to show us the, the love that God has for all people by standing in our place and overthrowing the biggest system the world has ever seen. It's the system of sin and death. It wasn't the system of Rome. It was the system of sin. And his role was to stand in your place, in your place, in yours, and mine, personally, regardless of what tribe, tongue, or nation we are from. He said, before we said things like unborn lives matter and black lives matter, which they do, Jesus said it first. When he looked at you, except for he didn't see just your ethnicity or your background. He saw your name. He saw your substance. He formed you when you had no form. And he stood on your behalf and my behalf. That's Jesus' role. You look throughout the New Testament, and all over and over and over and over again, it talks about what Jesus came to do. What we as the church are supposed to represent and walk in to the world. Jesus came to show that no matter what nationality we are, no matter what gender we are, no matter what system of government we're under, no matter what laws are in effect, no matter what you've done to someone or what's been done to you, you are created in the image of God 
And before he created the world in which we live, he knew you and loved you. That's Jesus's, that's who he is. And I thought, you know, we're in Hawaii. I'm surfing every day. I got a killer tan. I don't know if you noticed. But while we were there, and I thought a lot about I'm like, man, I don't know. But with the, the Supreme Court decision last week, by the way, Bob did such a good job. But, you know, that would happen just before he came and, and preached. And so, and um, I thought he was so well-spoken, uh, would never entrust this place to someone that I thought would, would um, you know, lead you guys astray or try to upcharge you or whatever. But, um, you know, a lot of stuff, you, that's not something that you're just going to go probably to someone else's church and just talk about freely. And, and um, his words were very wise and uh, appreciate them. But I just thought a lot about um, the Supreme Court decision last week, so the reversal of, of Roe v. Wade. And, and I'm like, well, maybe this is the part in the service where I tell them to turn the cameras off. Because, you know, anything that you say now is online, and you get canceled by someone for saying anything. But, you know, I really wanted to... Then I read this text, what we're teaching. And I saw that there were people that actually got Jesus' rule right, but missed his role. And I look at, not just last week, but I look at these, this time that I live. I'm 44. And I think about the things I've seen as a kid. I did not grow up in a Christian home. I got saved when I was 17. I was walking with Jesus. And, you know, in the 20s, you're kind of stupid, and you're, like, doing your own thing and trying to figure it out. No offense to 20-year-olds, it's just we have lots of grace for you. And then when we're 30, I'm like, oh, I still haven't figured it out. Now I'm in my 40s, and I'm like, I don't think you ever figure it out. And, uh, and then I look around, and I'm like, actually, none of us do ever figure it out. We're just doing the best we can with what we have, and praise God that we have his word and that we have the person of Jesus who has it figured out. But we tend to think we're like experts on stuff. And if someone doesn't share something, then the, the, just the things that people say to each other, so hurtful. And I have people that are close friends of mine that are not Christians, that would not, that are, that are not excited about last week's decision. And you know, I was really hoping that I would get a phone call from someone who's not a believer but knows me and we're friends and we have time in each other's lives. And I was really hoping I'd get a call that says, hey, JJ, can we talk about this? Because I can't understand it. Tell me and that someone would reach out and be like, tell me how this is good and that we could have a conversation. I didn't. Didn't get one phone call. But I saw about five videos on Instagram and Facebook that makes the church look like the devil incarnate people putting stuff on and saying and I'm just like that's just not true but there's no conversation and I'm like why is that it's because well seven out of ten abortions come from women 
out of wedlock, who aren't married, single. Now, I'm going to share some stuff with you that I wouldn't have shared with you a year ago because not only is it a year in our building and the five-year anniversary of me being the pastor of this church, it's also last week we spread my mom's ashes in the, in the ocean. But um, like 10 years ago, I, was, I wouldn't have said this when my mom was alive, but she's with Jesus now, and she would want everything in her life to, to bring glory to God and help other people. But my mom, you know, she, she, um, she had an abortion. We were talking one night, me and her, and um, she told me, in a moment of vulnerability, maybe. I didn't make a big deal about it because I didn't really, I was at a point in my life, it was probably maybe even more than 10 years ago, where I didn't, I don't know that I had a super big opinion about it. Someone's life, and, but I could tell that it bothered her, and here's what she shared with me. We were having, it ended up being quite a heart-to-heart but she was 16. She found herself pregnant. Her dad would have beat the crap out of her probably if he found out. And so she snuck away, and I don't think she ever told anybody maybe. Maybe a few people along the way knew, but I found out. And here's the part that she told me. She goes, you know, when I found out I was pregnant with you, I almost did it again. Because what are you going to do when you're 19 and you're not married and you're super broke and you have a poor self-image of who you are? How could you ever provide for another human because you're not even worth it? This is what she lived with and thought about. And she told me, as a mother would tell her son, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm so glad. Come hell or high water and her relationships that she had been through later in life and the hurts and the ups and downs and all the stuff, she, up until the very end, she looks at her kids and she's just like, I love you guys. But you know what? She walked through that. Statistics come from a place. She was one of many who find themselves pregnant, and they're just like, I don't know what to do. Did you know that if seven out of ten are out of wedlock, three of the out of those are from a strict religious upbringing? This is not an out there problem. This is a people problem. Three out of ten abortions are from someone who grew up in the church. You know the last place they go for help? Why? Because they're just fear of judgment. The last place people feel like they could get help is the very place that they're supposed to flee when we're at our worst to find grace and love and forgiveness if we, if we come to God with the reality of our brokenness and who we are. It's the last place. As a matter of fact, it's the place that people would be against when it comes to this stuff. I'm not trying to make the issue okay. 
or justify it. I'm just trying to help people understand how common it is. In the year 2020, 14 out of 1,000 pregnancies were ended in abortion. 14 out of 1,000. The reality is we are, this is not an, an us versus them issue. It's just something that the world is going through together. We're trying to navigate, and God knows the way through. And I think sometimes we're missing the point because we're so focused on God's rule, we miss his role. Did you know that it's possible to stand on the right side of an issue and still not be standing where Jesus might be standing? Because Jesus came and stood with the broken. The ones that the world says, eh, or that the church said, eh. Jesus stood in their midst, and we're trying to figure 2,000 years later, how do you teach this text? Jesus was with the prostitutes and the sinners and the drunkards and the homeless and the people that the world said, they're beyond hope, and Jesus said, I am hope. They're with me. You guys need to get this. And you look at the rest of the Bible, and it's the Peter and James and John and Paul writing these things later that they actually, this is what it looks like in practice. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is what it looks like to celebrate that there, that last week was great news for the voiceless. That there are those who can't speak up on their behalf, that now that, that it's taken out of the federal court's hands and put into the hands of the states. But it's not something to stand back and freaking spike the football, act like we're the, a touchdown was just scored. Because there are people that you talk to every day that have either seriously thought about this issue in their own personal life or have gone through with it. And Jesus has put you in their life for such a time as this, has put me in, in their life for such a time as this, has put our church in the middle of Bellingham, Washington, for such a time as this, to walk through life with people, not apart from them or separate from them. So while there is victory... I put this, it's not a time to stand back and do a touchdown dance like they did on the triumphal entry and say, we won, we win. It's time to get involved like never before. Not to stand on the sidelines and hurl insults, but to once again proclaim from the rooftops who Jesus is and then to personally seek his direction in our lives. Here's what breaks my heart. It's my biggest fear in life. It's my biggest fear for this church is that we would miss the point. Because there are some that are going to miss, because the, the spirit of God is moving. I believe it. Does anybody believe it? If you believe it, you need to be here two Mondays from now. Because we gather here and we're begging God to do a radical move in Bellingham. 
And you know what we're doing? We're willing to go first. And we gather together. We're not cool. We're broken. And we come together and we're like, hey, man, here's what's going on in my life. Can someone pray for me? I do it. I go first because that's what a leader does. They go first and they put it out there. And then it gives room for other people to be like, yeah, me too. And then maybe people who understand the grace of God, the power of forgiveness from God, maybe he would be like, I'll send some people who could use some grace this way. Why? Because they get it. They're not going to cheat people. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of churches that are good. I don't want to say a lot. There are some that are going to miss it. That's why Paul says to Timothy, understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. This isn't for them out there. He's writing about the church Timothy pastors. They will be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, You can't please them. Slanderous, they're going to talk crap. Without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. They're going to have the appearance of godliness. They're going to be a fig tree without fruit. And you know what he says? Avoid such people. For some of us, it'll be more about our agenda than God's. That's why the point number one, partner with God, keeps you humble. It keeps you engaged. It keeps skin in the game, saying, I'm in this, Lord. Help me. I could go on, but I'm not going to. Here's what I want. I want people to know that we care about life. Jesus cared about life. He cared about the life of the unborn. You know why? He created them. They were made in the image of God. He cared about the life. He cares about the lives of the moms who feel like they have no other option. And this is their best option. He cares about you with all the stupid stuff you've done. I'm sorry to say that word. My wife does not like that word. With all the things that you've done that you wish you wouldn't have. You know that God is not mad at you? Some of you don't know that. God is not mad at you. Do you know that God is only ever mad once? And it was at his own son because of his love for you. He poured out his wrath against all of our sin on his own son, Jesus, so we wouldn't have to experience that. So we can come to God as a loving father and receive grace and mercy because he poured out judgment for our sin on Jesus. That's why we make a big deal about Jesus. You guys, I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss the rule of Jesus, and I don't want to miss the role of Jesus, what he's wanting to do. Let me tell you something, and this I'm going to end with this. 
I put this. Sorry, I was at a beach. We don't want to miss the wave of the Spirit. We want to surf it. Write that down. And then this is what I have at the end here. We are the church. Some of you need to speak this to yourself. We are the church of the pandemic era. Us. We are the church of the social injustice, the reemergence of the social injustice era. We are the church in this crazy mass shooting era. We are the church of the new sexual ethic era. We are the church in the post-Roe Wade era. Are you going to run from that? Are you going to lock yourself away? Or are you going to believe that Jesus has a way through and for such a time as this, he has called you and me? That's what I'm doing. That's where I want to be positioned. When you go home later, would you look at Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah chapter 6. There's this young person, and it says, it's, it's this verse, when maybe you've heard it, when God says, who will go for us? Who should we send? And this young, this young man, young, I don't know, I forget how old he was. But God said, who should we send? Who will go for us? And this one kid, against all the circumstances, he goes, send me, I'll go. How did this kid get to where he's like, I'm down to partner with you, God, on whatever it is that you're doing, whatever you call for me? It says he saw the glory of God in his own life. And then he saw his own sin. And then God said, you're forgiven. Now go and speak my words to these people. I, I read that late last night and again this morning, and I threw it in there at the end. And I was like, this is an awesome de depiction of what it looks like for God to move in our hearts first. Whew. Okay, heavy Sunday. Let's pray. And then we're going to sing this last song. Then I'll come up and, and, and dismiss everybody. Father, thank you for today. That's three weeks of pent-up stuff within me, Lord, and I just pray that your word was given with clarity and that your heart for people was represented well. Lord, we love you, and we just admit there are things going on in our world that are so hard to navigate. They're so hard on our own to just, like, do the right answer and we can find ourselves out of, out of balance. We know this, that you are the king. You hold all things under your authority. We believe that. Yet you, in all of your authority, you humbled yourself and became like a servant to serve all people. So somewhere in the middle of the messiness of life, you have all authority even over sin and death and yet you want to associate with the most broken and hurting of us. Lord, we just say we are broken and hurting. Thank you for associating with us. We love you. We want you to be proclaimed. We want more people to know how good you are, what grace is really like. 
that you are not the enemy, but you are the greatest friend to sinners, Lord. We sing the song to you in response to your goodness, and we love you in Jesus' name.